Good morning. You got your Bibles, go to the book of Galatians. Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 1. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, we just thank you for this day and this opportunity, just the fellowship, to be together, to love one another, God, and just enjoy knowing you. I pray, Father God, that we be exhorted and drawn closer to you, God. Open up our hearts, open up our minds, give us understanding, God. Make us quick in understanding, God, to learn your truth, to love it, God, and to live it all in praise and worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to start at, starting in verse 1. And we're continuing with where we was last week, but I'm going to flip things around just a little bit to try to get the mindset of where we're going to be going. So in this Galatians chapter 3, there's going to be a chapter that in the upcoming months we're going to walk through very slowly. But now, just for the sake of background and understanding, try to get your mind where my mind at. So you can understand what we're going to say. We're going to stop at a couple points through here. We're still talking about the Spirit of God and the effects of the Spirit of God on our lives and how it works and what it does. And last week, I tried to demonstrate that God gives commands. And when he gives us a command, a command, his commands are an expression of who he is and his spirit satisfies the want or the lack of the ability to fulfill that command in us. And it works the same with every single command of God. So we have the power, we have the ability to be and to do all that God created us to be and to do. There is no command outside of our reach. There is no rule too high, too great for us to achieve because everything God requires us to do, he is himself. And if he lives inside of us, he can express himself through us. And that's the basic foundation of what we're going. Now, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul opens up. Let me read verse 1. It says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Receive you the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of the faith. So this is Paul, and this is his setup. The situation we have here in Galatia is there was a group of outsiders that came in after Paul had preached, after Paul had taught, and began to set rules and regulations on them that became a requirement for, in order for them to be with God or to ascertain salvation or to gain salvation. So they start bringing out some outside stuff. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to wear your clothes this way. And all these various things that they were requiring of them in order for them to be accepted in God, in order for them to be classified as the people of God. And this is Paul's response. He called them fools. So you foolish Galatians who have bewitched you. So who has tricked you? Who came in to seduce you? And his question is the one that we're going to focus on for now. Look at his question. In in verse two said this only what I learn of you. Receive you the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. 
So his question is, how did you get the spirit of God? How did the spirit of God come upon you? Was it because you looked at the law, you looked at the rules and did them? Or was it because you believed? That's his question to them. So the spirit comes through work, activity, following a bunch of rules and guidelines and principles. Or do we get it through faith? And he takes the rest of the chapter to demonstrate to them that the spirit that they received, the spirit of God, the spirit of life, spirit of godliness came to them through faith. And that's the way that God set it up. But the principle I want you to get is that he contrasts working the law with faith, but he connected receiving the spirit with faith. So we got two, con- I got a contrast and a connection. The contrast is to work in the law for the purpose of gaining the spirit, gaining the favor of God and believing as a means of walking or living in the spirit. As when you go down a little further in verse five, he said, he therefore that ministered to you the spirit and worketh miracles among you, do it he by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. So what he's demonstrating is that the operation of the spirit in the life of the Galatians is connected to the faith of the Galatians not to their obedience to an outside rule. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So if we would see the spirit of God manifested in our lives, if we would see the fullness of all that God is expressed through us, we must have faith. Faith is the foundation of who we are as people. But understand, faith is not just thinking that it's a God up there. The Bible said the devils do that and tremble. Faith is relinquishing who you are, surrendering all your being and trusting that what God said and who God is, is reliable. God know better than you know, and he can do better than you can do. And you trust him completely and totally. And that's the way that we express the spirit of God through our lives. Go down to verse. 21. And this is what we're going to springboard. Like I said, we'll come back to this and work this out fully. But I just want to get this mindset in as we go forward. It'll make a little more sense. In verse 21, it says, is the law then against the promise of God? This is him finishing up his statement. He'd be contrasting the promises of God versus the law of God. Obedience to the law versus faith. So this is his summation. Says the law then against the promises of God. God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. So think, if there was a law that could have produced righteousness or given life, righteousness would have been by the law. And you see the parallel there. You probably didn't catch it. Say, if there would have been a law that could have given life, righteousness would have been by the law. The parallels is between righteousness and life. So in Paul's mind, righteousness is life. Life is righteousness. You can't separate the two. So if you have life, if you have eternal life, you have righteousness because those who are righteous inherit the kingdom of God. Holiness produce eternal life. But the righteousness of the law could not have been produced by the law. Therefore, righteousness does not come through the law. And we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. Why does righteousness not come from the law? Anybody remember? We don't. Because what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God had to do it. So righteousness could not come through the law because we could not do the law. 
we do not have the ability to be and do all that God told us to. So that's why telling us what's right ain't going to make us right. You understand what I'm saying? So putting the rules on the board in the classroom is not going to make the children obey. And that's why righteousness could not come through the law. They got the little sign on the classroom. Keep your hands to yourself. Children still steal and they slap each other across the head. Same rules that been in there since you was in school. Got dust all on. <laughs> and they still doing the same thing that you were doing when you was in school. Pulling the little girl hair. Stealing her paper off her desk. Knocking her pencil on the floor. Because them rules does not give you the ability to keep your hands to yourself because they told you to. It takes something internal to produce that within you. And that's what he's saying. So that's why the righteousness could not come by the law. Verse 22. Watch this now. It said, but the scripture has concluded all under sin that the promises promised by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So the scriptures has concluded everybody under sin. Basically what he's saying is, if you pay attention to the scriptures and the form and the flow of the thought of the scriptures through the giving of the law, it has condemned every single human being that done walked this planet. It put all of us under condemnation. Everybody is under sin. Since everybody is under sin and righteousness cannot be achieved through obedience, that means we all need to rely upon faith. That's basis of what he's saying. 23, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So basically what he's saying is the reason that God gave a law, even though we could not obey the law, is that the law was our schoolmaster. The law was our teacher. The law was our guide. Until the time that Christ came and it was a guide to lead us to Christ. And this is the idea. When you read in the scriptures, thou shalt not covet. And you understand this is God desire. This is God requirement. And those who covenant are in subject to judgment. It should produce within you awareness of your own covetous heart and awareness of your condemnation before God, which should produce in you a desire to be free. You understand what I'm saying? And since you know there is no other hope outside of Jesus Christ, once you get that conviction and that condemnation, that awareness that you cannot meet this standard of righteousness, it should push you towards Christ. You understand what I'm saying? I can give you a little natural example. Let's just say we had parents that was math geniuses. Mama and them, they, 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 they just was great in math. And your teacher sent you home with an arrest assignment and his homework because y'all didn't get to it in class. And when you look at it, you see all them X's and dots and dashes and, 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 and fractions and all that other stuff. That she ain't explained nothing about in the classroom. And you sitting there, you looking at that paper, and you just staying there. 
because you don't understand one single thing on the paper. But you know, if you don't do this homework, you're going to get a zero for your homework grade. And when you bring home the zero for your homework grade, mama and them going to be on you. Because they didn't told you, make sure you do your homework. So now you're in a conundrum. You have a requirement that you have to do that you cannot do. And your inability to do it will not alleviate you from the punishment that's going to come when you come back home with that conduct check or whatever it is your teacher give you saying you didn't do your homework. You stuck. Ain't nothing you can do to get you out of this situation. But then you remember, your parent is a math genius. What do you do? You ask them for help. Why you ask them for help? You can't do it, and they can. So your natural desire, since you don't want to be punished, you want to do what's right, but you cannot do what's right, is you go to the only one that can give you the ability to be what it is that you desire to be but cannot. And that's the same way the law works. So when you read in your Bible, Let's look at one. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. All right, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read this almost in reverse. Five of them start at verse 48. It said, Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. When he said, be ye therefore, he is commanding you to do something. So this is Jesus giving you a law, a rule, a statute, a principle to live by. Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, let me show you something. Normally, church folks going to cheat you. And they're going to tell you that word perfect means to be mature. So you have to be mature. And I say, okay. And that, that alleviates the burden. Because when you first read it in this old King James, you're like, perfect, man. Can't nobody be perfect. How in the world are you going to tell us to be perfect? But then church going to tell you, nah, man, it, it means be mature. And so you say, okay, I think I'm mature. <laughs> and you don't, you don't feel that bad about yourself when you read that thing. You go on and forget what you read, and you run your way right on to condemnation. But even if it does just be me, mean be mature, see the comparison. Be mature like who? Like your father which is in heaven. How mature is he? Completely. So if there's inside of immaturity in you, you got an liquor in you, you are disqualified from obeying this command. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Because he set the bar to be you perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. So the comparison I have for myself is God the father himself and that's the degree of perfection or maturity, whatever they say it is, that I'm supposed to live up to. 
Now, when you lay that, let that weigh on you, you be like, ain't no way in the world we can do that. But Jesus explains it a little bit. Go back to verse 43. But the explanation don't help. It makes it a little bit worse. Verse 43. So you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. This is Jesus talking. You heard it said. Love your neighbor and hate your enemies. He said, that ain't what I'm talking about. You need to love your enemies, the people who curse you. So when they cuss you out, you're supposed to bless them. We, we got that. You don't supposed to say, nah, man, where in the world she going to talk to me like that? That don't sound like no bless. <laughs> when they cuss you out, you're supposed to bless them. And say, when they hate you, you're supposed to do them good. So the people that hate you, that to respond to you with hatred, that respond to you with angst, that respond to you with some meanness in their blood, in their mind about you, say you're supposed to do them good. So they slat your tie, and you see them on the side of the road, and they ain't got their jack in their trunk. You supposed to pull over, get the jack out of your trunk, jack their car up, and help them change their tie with all goodness and intentions in your heart. That what Jesus said. And we're going to add to that in a little bit. Now, what, what, keep going, though. He said, you pray for them which despitefully use you. Now, that makes it a little bit worse. How many of us have said this statement before? That them folks are trying to take advantage of me. Anybody ever thought that about somebody? They're just trying to get over on me. If I do this, this, that, they're going to think I'm a dope mat. Ain't nobody dope mat. Don't nobody walk over me. Okay, I I know y'all good people. Y'all don't have them type of thoughts and feelings toward people. But that would be despitefully using you. Jesus talked about that. Those who despitefully, out of spite, out of hatred, out of angst towards you, they just want to do something just to get at you. You ain't did nothing to them. They ain't really got no reason to hate you. It's just spite in them that make them want to get at you. And so they try to set up a situation just to get at you. And all you're supposed to do is pray for them. And not only if they just do things to get at you, despitefully use you, he added, and persecute you. So Jesus' idea is is that when we saw them Christian brothers in Egypt being marched out onto the beach, 21 of them, by some men in hoods with some rusty old machetes who made them bow down and begin slashing at their throat, broadcasting it live on TV, on the intranet, that why them brothers was Slashing at their throat, they supposed to be in a position to pray for them, brothers. That's persecution. Now, how many of you would say that these type of responses does not flow naturally from your being? 
that when you get wind that somebody trying to get over you, that falling to your knees and praying God's blessing and praying God's goodness and praying God's forgiveness over them just ain't a natural response. That when somebody did you wrong, seeking and looking for ways to benefit them, to do them good, to show them kindness, to show them favor, just, just your mind just don't work that way. So to that degree or in that way, it's the way in which God is calling us to be perfect, just like he is perfect. Because we can continue to read. It says you do this, verse 45, that you may be children of your father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and send the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them, which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans the same. Be ye therefore. So since God is this kind of God, since God is the God that has the ability to control himself, to show patience, to show kindness in the midst and to people who hate him, who despitefully use him, who have no regard for his being, you should be the same kind of person. Because you were created in the image of God to be like God. That is your destiny as a human being. But if we be honest with ourselves, reading commands like this produce within us some type of Constorted way to justify ourselves because we know we don't match up to it. So we have to make up stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, man, I love people. You know what I'm saying? I see a little man on the street. You know what I'm saying? I give him a couple dollars every now and then. And so, yeah, I got love. I'm full of love. That ain't the type of love Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about when the folks misuse you, when they abuse you, when they mistreat you, when everything they do is against you and for no other reason than the fact that they don't like you, you need to do them the same way. That you did that homeless man, give him a couple dollars on the street to take care for him. That hatred doesn't arise. That spitefulness doesn't arise. That your mind don't begin to manipulate ways to get them back, to overcome, to, to just, 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 just make it known. This is the type of love that God desires and requires for us to have. And beyond that, this is the type of love he commands us to have. It's not a suggestion. This is not just a good idea. Well, Jesus is saying, man, the world would be a better place if y'all just learn how to love each other like this. That ain't what he's saying. He's saying if you're a child of mine, if you want to be just like your father, which is in heaven, which is your purpose and destiny as a human being, you better be like this. Because this is the type of love that I got, and you're supposed to be my people, so you need to have the same type of love. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. So we're going to add Paul to Jesus. And he said, let love be without dissimulation. Now, what in the world does that mean? The basic idea is the word dissimulation means without changing or turning. And the idea is in your love, don't be a hypocrite. In your love, don't have a hidden agenda. Don't be fake with it. Don't be phony with it. Be completely and totally real in your love to people. Now, let's connect that with what Jesus is saying. Because we all have seen these people. 
somebody cuss them out, say something crazy. And they be like, God bless you. <laughs> you see, if somebody do something like that, and everybody know that's around, this is complete sarcasm. That they don't mean nothing what they say. It's just that they done found this external standard and trying to put on the shell of being in agreement with it. And what Paul said, that shouldn't be. So just because you can control your tongue enough not to cuss, that don't mean you living in agreement with what Jesus said. Because this love that we're supposed to display, this love that we're supposed to put on to other people, should be without dissimulation, without fakeness, without hypocritical attitudes, the thoughts, our desires. There should be nothing in us that does not align with or agree with the expressions that we are showing. All of our being need to be an expression of this love, this desire to bless, this desire to do good to the people who hate us. Then he add a little, a little bit extra in verse 10. He said, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. This is the type of love we're supposed to have. So be kindly affectionate. So have affection towards one another, but it's kindly affection. That kindly adds the idea with that your disposition towards them is to do them good or to be well towards them. It's not just nice feelings. So the kindly affection is the disposition that I'm in a position and the way I respond to this person is to do them good, to do them well, and all my passions, all my desires are in that direction. So I love them, whether they love me or not, whether they're nice to me or not, and everything is in me ready to do them good. And my heart is behind that. I'm affectionate towards doing them good. And he said, preferring one another. So the one who I esteem to be great, the one who I esteem to do good, the one who I seek to satisfy above any other is not me. So in this love, we got to be across the board. Enemies, neighbors, brothers, those who use us get the same love. And it cannot have any form of fakeness or phoniness about it. It has to be real. And it has to flow from a disposition to do them good. That my whole heart desire is to benefit them. And my mindset should be that I prefer them over me. Are you understanding what I'm saying? That... When it comes down to who is the best, who is the greatest, who is the one that needs to be best benefited from this relationship, it's always the other person. That changed our modern American concept of friendships. Because the secular world has come into the church and taught us some stuff. And they taught us about these mutual friendships. And these are the type of friendships we need to cultivate. So you connect friendships with people who try to, they going somewhere you want to be. And you become their friend because they're going to take you where you're trying to go. And these are the type of friends that we need to surround ourselves with these type of people. Now the idea sounds good. But what it has trinkled into is the mindset 
that any time I'm with somebody in a friendship relationship and I am the one who always giving, I am the one who always loving, they always call me every time they need something. Anytime somebody expresses some hardship or some angst, it's me sitting there listening while they tell me all their trouble. And anytime I get ready to call them about something they busy, I'm going to cut them off, block their number because they ain't my real friend. That's what, that's what that idea, that mindset about surrounding yourself with people who are going to benefit you and take you where you're trying to go. That's what it has produced. So I get mad at Aaron if every time he called me, it because he got a question or he needs something, then he disappear off the planet and don't hear from him no more. Then he needs something else and he called me again. And I'd be like, man, the dude tripping. Why you don't call me when you need something? I'm saying, why you don't never just call me? Just check up on me. But if I truly had love for Aaron, no matter why he called me, I am delighted that he did, and my desire is to help him. I'm not offended because I get a chance to be like God. Man, you treat me just like Jesus. (laughs) I don't like you. (laughs) And what do I mean by that? The vast majority of people on the planet that pray, pray when? When they need something. And not only just when they need something, it's when they done tried everything else on their own and ain't none of it work, and it's at the last moment, at the last hour, now they want to pray. I ain't thought about God all year. Then they spent up all their crippled money, and now January the 1st coming on, and life about to be cut off. Call grandma. She ain't got no money. She spent up all the money on crippled too. Call the auntie. They cut off. Cause last time I let you borrow money, you said you're going to give it back to me when your income tax come. And your income tax ain't came yet. <laughs> and now I'm stuck. The rent lady calling. Them title loan people calling. I done maxed out my payday loan because the governor passed that little law. Won't let me get more than three. <laughs> Now I'm stuck. And God, if you bring me through this, you understand what I'm saying? That's how people treat God. And God never says, now I told you way back when you were five years old, your granny told you you need to pray every day and every night. Now you done stopped all these years. You ain't been praying since your granny left. And now you want to call me because your light about to get cut off. God don't respond like that. That ain't the God that we serve. So why you get to be like that? And they ain't calling you asking you for nothing. They just call an event. They get calling asking for advice. But you feel like they don't love you like they ain't your real friend. They ain't supposed to. You, the, the, the Christian, you the one that's supposed to be with the Holy Ghost living inside of you. You're supposed to love them. And what if they don't give nothing in return? So? You don't love them for return. You love them because you are a lover. And this is the type of love that God desires, that God requires, that God commands. But if we be honest with ourselves, we don't see how it is in us that we can meet this. Because all of these responses we have are natural responses. They're innate responses. That's stuff we do without even realizing we've done it. We get mad and upset before we even realize it. 
This is the type of love that God desires for us, that God requires for us, that God demands. And if you ain't got this type of love, you're living in disobedience. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Because we're supposed to be perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect. And this thing goes across the board. That's why one of the biggest attacks on marriages is going forth right now. Like people out there, and they, they picketing and they protesting and they holding up their signs talking about the homosexual agenda. And they got an attack against marriage. The attack against marriage started way back when they started putting these no-fault divorce laws on the books. And people get to make these engagements, make these arrangements, and say, forget what God said. I don't feel happy and satisfied. I need to leave. But they do these things, violating the covenant of God, violating the standards of God, claiming to be Christians, claiming to love God, living in all of these multiple marriages, these consecutive polygamy. That's what we got going on because people don't know how to love. Marriage ain't no 50-50 relationship. It's you loving the other person. It says you prefer the other one over yourself. So we're in a relationship where they ain't making me happy. I ain't trying to make me happy. I'm trying to make them happy, irregardless of how they treat me. So I go to work. I pay the bills. I do all this and all that, and he don't appreciate none of it. So that means it sounds like he despitefully using you. That what it sounds like, though. So what you supposed to do with the people that despitefully use you? Leave? That ain't what Jesus said. He said to pray for them. So you go to work. You pay the bills. He despitefully uses you. You're supposed to come back home, get on your knees, and plead to the Father for the salvation of this brother, not leave. Because love ain't a 50-50 thing. Because love don't prefer this one. It prefers the other one. Love is the desire to please, to do good, to the object of your perfection. I mean, your obsession, your desire. That's what love is. That's what love does. So there's no way that we can be a Christian nation when vast majority of those who claim to believe in Jesus are ending their relationships in divorce. And the only reason is because they don't make me happy no more. Hmm. That don't sound like love. Because love ain't about making me happy. It's about making the other person that way. Love is about pouring of yourself for the benefit of the other. And whether that other is somebody who's kind to you, or that other is somebody who mean to you, or that other is somebody that hates you, or that other is somebody you barely even know. Love requires that you do them good. And God requires that we live in love. Are you understanding what I'm saying? But the thing I want to point out, my main purpose and point is these type of responses does not flow naturally from our being. That we can't live up to this standard. This goes far above and beyond anything that we're capable of doing. 
Let's just breeze through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So that, that's the one everybody put on their little plaques and got it at the background in your office on your desktop. All y'all good Christian folks who love everybody. I'm just going to breeze through this real quick. Said so though I, I'm starting in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 13. Said, so though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become as a sound and brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. See, I just got a thought. God just won't leave me alone. <laughs> look, look at them two again. It say, I speak with the tongues of men and angels and don't have charity. I become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Got the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledges. Though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, I have not love. I am nothing. In, in, in reading this, I, I got this thought, and I got to express it. Now, as you read that, tongues of men and angels, that sounds like an eloquent person. That sounds like a well-learned person. Verse 2, understand all mysteries, got the gift of prophecy. Sound like some person with some spiritual giftings that can declare things and that can speak things that regular folk can't do. And in some nations in our charismatic world, that sounds like a preacher. He can talk, prophesy, understand mysteries. He give you the seven secrets of everything. They'll be making up stuff. But he said, if he got these and he does not have love, he'll sound and tinkling symbol, and he is nothing. If you don't have love, just make a noise, and he is nothing. And we talked about love a little bit. Love prefers who? The people over self. So, if you're in a place where the man of God got all these things, speak eloquently, he understands deep mysteries and he explains the scriptures to you in ways you've never seen before. He prophesies and speak over your life. But the whole congregation, the whole setup of the organization is built to serve him. He does not have love. Because true love from a leader is his willingness to humble himself to serve you. That's what Jesus did. When Jesus drew crowds, Jesus drew crowds because he was serving the people. And Jesus was willing to walk in the midst of the people. Jesus was willing to bend down and wash his people's feet. Jesus was willing to take himself away from glory, come down on this planet to be beaten, humiliated, all out of love for some people who didn't care nothing about him. That's love. Sacrifice. That's love. Giving up oneself. That's love. Being available for the good and the use of the other people. So if you got a man that called himself your spiritual leader, your man of God, and you can't reach him, you can't touch him, he can't come to your house and sit on your couch with the plastic on it and have a conversation with you, I question whether or not he loves you. Because you don't exist in this congregation for him. He exists for you. Because the servant, the greatest of them all, is the one who serves the most people. 
and our leader, the bishop of our soul, the captain of our faith, the creator of the heavens and the earth himself demonstrated the way it was supposed to be. Jesus got through preaching. He didn't escape through the back. Lepers touched him. You understanding what I'm saying? This is the Jesus, the captain of our salvation, the demonstration of love that we're supposed to follow. Y'all get me? This is God. God is love and God is open to people to serve people. And these are the type of people we're supposed to be. We need to be available to help, to assist, to serve, to get down, to get our shoes dirty, to just, just to be there for people. Because that's what love does. People don't exist for us. We don't do ministry to make ourselves great, to make ourselves look good. That don't mean nothing. The only good on this planet is God and God demonstrated love by coming down to people that didn't like him. And that's what we're supposed to be. And then you got this other category. Got all that same stuff. They speak. They prophesy. And they do all that wonderful stuff. But your first lady is the third one. (laughs) Your first lady is the third one. Now, if your first lady is the third one, that believes this man of God who can speak with all these different tongues, who got these gifts of prophecies, who can understand all mysteries, who got all kind of faith, don't have the love to stick through a rough relationship, don't have love to be able to sacrifice himself through hard times with one person. Love and covenant breaking don't go hand in hand. Like I said, our example is God. God made a covenant with who? Abraham. And it expanded to everybody. The covenant he made with Abraham, he stuck with it. How many times did Israel go and worship other gods? All throughout their history. How many times did God tell them, I ain't going to leave you because of the covenant I made with your fathers? So God's understanding of him loving Israel was the ability for him to maintain his covenant throughout their unfaithfulness. Because he's a God of love. But we got people leading us who can't maintain their covenant but claim to be the people of God, the men of God, the leaders of God's people and them broke covenant three times. And truth be told, most of the time they were the Israel in the relationship. They were the ones out there doing all type of foolishness and supposed to be loving their wives like Christ loved the church. Christ ain't never forsake me. So how can I be a leader and claim to be loving my wife like Christ and I'm forsaking her? Let's keep moving. I ain't supposed to get get on that today. I'm sorry, (laughs) y'all. Verse 3. Say, and bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, they profit me nothing. Because charity suffer long in its kind, charity envy it not, charity vaunted not itself, it is not puffed up. So this love is patient, it's kind. There go that kind again. Understand that kind is not just nice feelings. It's the disposition or the desire to do good or to benefit the other. 
So this is what love does. It's patient with the other and it seeks to benefit the other person, not yourself. It does not envy. That means it, it does not covet. It does not lust alone for his own self. It said, have not, and vaunted not itself, is not puffed up. The vaunted not itself and is not puffed up are two parallels. Vaunted not itself means that it doesn't boast and swell himself. So don't use their tongue to pump up themselves. That ain't what love does. That ain't how love get down. So if you're in a relationship with somebody who claims to love you and all they got to do is talk about them, that ain't love. And everything that go on, everything that, that, that's been said is to make them look good and to make them be great, that ain't love. Then the opposite is, is not puffed up. That means an inward disposition. That means internally they got a heart that, that expands them, that makes them feel greater than what they truly are. That makes them carry themselves like they somebody above and beyond that's bigger and greater than what they truly are. Love don't operate like that. Love is humble. Love is kind. It's patient. You can't be patient and kind above everybody else. You, you understand what I'm saying? It said, does not behave itself unseemly, seek it not her own, is not easily provoked, think it no evil. Does not behave itself unseemly. So don't behave itself in a way that just ain't befitting, that just ain't becoming. It, 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 love is appropriate. Love treats you and responds to you in a way that's fitting, in a way that is appropriate, in a way that, 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 that does not violate you and who you are. That's what love does. So if there's any violation, there's any pressure for discomfort in something that violates your, your standards, that violates your, your principles, that violates your morals, he does not love you. Because love don't behave itself unseemly. And it says, seek it not her own. We got that again. Love ain't trying to please self. Love is about other people. But if you think, one of the first expressions of identity we have is when we look at the children. And what is that? You get a little toy. Your cousin dig it out the bottom of the toy box. And you ain't seen it in three months. You run, you snatch it, and you say, mine. That's, that's one of the first expressions of, of self-identity we got. Children know how to say mine quite fast. Don't own nothing. But they understand mind, that's one of the first concepts they get. Because it is innate within us to be selfish. Y'all, you, you get what I'm saying? So this type of love don't happen naturally. You just don't get this stuff by growing old. Old folks, young folks, all folks are selfish. That Maslow's hierarchy, those all educated people that went to school. All he showed you was a selfish, unregenerate man. That desire for self-protection and self-preservation. Yes, that's, 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 that's true in unregenerate people because all we care about is ourselves. But God requires you to care about everybody else. God requires you to love other people, even if it means some discomfort to yourself. Even if it means sacrifice to yourself. So how in the world... Can we do this? 
How is this possible for us to live this way, for us to love like this, for us to be so overcome with a passion and a compassion for people that we're willing to give of ourselves, that we're willing to open up ourselves, that we're willing to humble ourselves, to discomfort ourselves purely for their benefit and their good. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Try to run these real quick. Just give you a couple. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4. Right, this is God speaking to the children of Israel about his mercies that he's going to show them. It says, if any of thine be driven out unto the outmost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. The Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possess, and thou shalt possess it. And he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. So this is a promise. Promise of restoration. It's saying if your people are scattered, they do some stuff that causes me to punish them, that causes me to judge them. Said so from the place that I scattered them, I'm going to regather them back to me. I'm going to restore them back to the land. So basically what we were talking about earlier, he's going to fulfill his promise that he gave to Abraham. So my promise is going to be fulfilled. But in this restoration, in this read the gathering, he said, I will circumcise your heart. So God is going to do something to the heart of these people that's going to cause them to love him. Uh, You're you seeing the picture. And this is way back in Deuteronomy. He's making this promise. That when I regather you, I'm going to do something to your heart. He said, I will circumcise your heart. And the circumcision is the removing of the excess. excess. So God is going to do a surgery on their heart. And the outcome of this surgery is that they're going to love him with all their hearts, with all their minds, and they're going to live. So love is produced within them by an act of God. And this act of God has an effect on who they are within. This is God's promise. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So how can we have a love like God requires us to have? How can we love people with all our heart, not hold anything back? It's because God has the ability to do something in me to cut away the hatred, to cut away the selfishness, to cut away everything in me that causes me not to love the way I'm supposed to love and produce within me a love for God. Are are, are you tracking with what I'm saying? Go to Galatians chapter 5. Matter of fact, stop by Romans on your way to Galatians. But y'all got them electronic Bible, so it don't work like that. Romans chapter 5. Stop by there. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start. Just read that verse 1. Said, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope make it not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So this is Paul speaking about their ability to glory in the midst of tribulation. So like I said, tribulation for Paul don't work quite about the same for us. Because we think about people making bad comments about us or stealing our cup off our desk in the office. And they persecute me because I'm a Christian. 
what Paul was talking about was people actually beating him up, taking their stuff, whipping them, abusing them, just because of their confession of faith. But he said, I have the ability to glory in that. So Paul can glory in the mistreatment that he received from other people. Then he run this long list of why he can do it. And it ends with, because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Ghost. So Paul got confidence that because of the Holy Ghost living inside of him, that God's love has been expanded, has been made big, has been opened up, and that causes him to glory in the midst of these things. You get what I'm saying? So he can do the stuff that we're supposed to do because God is inside of him, and God's love has been shed abroad throughout his heart. And it works the same if we have received the same gift. God loves dwells inside of us and it moves and permeates through our being if we yield and trust in him. Go to Galatians chapter 5 and this will be our last stop. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 verse 22. It said, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, this temperance against us, there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust there in its lust. If we live in the spirit, let us walk in the spirit and let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. So this is Paul's summation of his thought. And this is where we open and this is where it leads to. Said he's contrasting the works of our natural man, of our flesh, which includes all that stuff that would not allow us to love, hatred. The simulations, the envies, the strife, seditions, all these things flow from our natural being. He said, but the fruit of the spirit, the thing that the spirit produces, the thing that the spirit brings about is love. So the spirit produces love and we're supposed to be people controlled by the spirit of God. So if I'm walking in the spirit of God and this is the outflow of the spirit of God, I should be walking in what? Love. So God set a bar so high. None of us can reach it. But all of us will and must reach it. But the only way we can is through the spirit of God living in our hearts. And it's not something that we have to strain to produce. It is not something that we have to trick ourselves to try to make happen. It ain't something where you got to say, I'm going to give myself the 30-day plan. And every time I see somebody, I'm just going to smile for 30 days. And after 30 days, it's going to become a habit. And I'm going to be a loving and nice person. That's a lie. Because how do you receive the Spirit? Was it by the works of the flesh or by the hearing of faith? And if you began in the Spirit, how are you going to finish the Spirit's work by the flesh? So when the preacher man tell you that you got to practice loving people by just writing nice thank you notes all across the room. And once you do that, our love for these people is just going to develop in your heart. And before you know it, you're just going to like them. That's a lie. That's you trying to produce what God designed for himself to make happen by your own efforts. Just smiling out of your self-will does not produce love. Making a 30-day calendar of nice things you can do for people by yourself does not produce love. 
that produce outward actions that may look nice and kind to other people, but it does not change your heart. Only God, the Holy Spirit from above, the creator of the heavens and earth that dwells inside of you has the ability to circumcise your heart and make you love people no matter what. So what we need to do is what we started at. You are that kid with that hard mouth homework. And your homework is to love all people at all times, irregardless of how you feel on the inside of how they treat you. And you can't do that. So what do you do? You go to your father that has access to all the love in all of eternity because he himself is love. And you ask him, you beg him, you plead with him to express himself through you. Because God is love. And if God lives inside of me, he should be able to show love through me. That's the only hope we have. And that's what the law produces. It should drive us to Christ. And that driving us to Christ should drive us in hope and faith that what he told me about his Holy Spirit living inside of me is true and it is real. And the Holy Spirit can shed that love abroad in my heart. The Holy Spirit can produce that love, that joy, that peace, that meekness, that temperance, that kindness, all these stuff that I don't have on my own. That he can circumcise my heart and give me a love for God and a love for people that will not fade, that will not fail because God is eternal and he lives inside of me. He is real and there's no shadow of turning in him. That means there ain't no hypocrisy. God don't change. And if he in me, that means he can love just like he loved everywhere else inside of me. But that's the only hope that I have. Y'all understand what I'm saying? So let's not justify our wickedness by stacking up all the people we do love and ignoring the hatred that we have for some other people in the way they treat us. Be real with yourself. You don't like it. It make you mad. It make you angry. Sometimes it make you want to slap folks. That's fine. You're a human. You're wretched. You're bad. You're evil. You're wicked. Isn't that what wicked people do? Get mad and slap people. That's the reality. Stop being fake. Be real with yourself. I got a problem with getting mad. I got a problem when people talk to me a certain way. I got a problem when people disrespect me. But I ain't supposed to be like that. And I can't help it. God, please change me. But you do that out of faith, knowing that God is the only one that can make it happen. And so the only seven steps you need is the one, call on Jesus. The only secret to the mysteries of unleashing the love of God in your life and to your neighbors in your neighborhood you need is the plain open truth that God inside of you is the hope of glory. And the only way that you can love is unless he make love in you. So the only 30 day plan you got is for the next 30 days, I'm going to seek Jesus until I be like him. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And the only response I got is not to be fake or phony. It's to be real and go to God until he changes me. And you keep asking him for help till you get your homework done. Y'all understanding what I'm saying? And that's the only hope we have. And it works the same with every command we read in the scripture. And the catch is, if we get this one right, all the rest of them is dependent on this one. Because every command hangs upon the two. Love God with all you got. Love people like you love yourself. And only God can produce that in us. So let's seek God till we see it. You with me? Anybody got any questions?
Um, you said something earlier. I think I'm gonna get it mixed up because mm-hmm. when I got it, my mind went all kind of ways. But I, I think it was righteousness through obedience is not fulfilled by faith. No. I think I got it mixed up though. Like I, I heard you say it, but I can't remember how you said it. But that's how it came out in my mind. Say, say what came out of your mind. <laughs> righteousness through obedience is not fulfilled by faith. I was saying that there's a contrast that the law does not produce righteousness. So obedience to the law does not produce righteousness. Righteousness is only gained through faith. So no matter how much you try to obey and do the right things. It's going to always end somewhere. The only way you can get to where you're supposed to be is faith in God. So you can try and you can try and you will get better. But better ain't good. Because if I get better from making a zero and I make a 50, I got better, but I'm still flunking. And what God desires and requires is for us to be the best, to be all that he created us to be. And the only way we get there is through faith. And that goes to my um, my next question about partial love. You say it has to be complete and mm-hmm. matured in all areas. So what do you do? If you feel like if you can see the fruits that love is good, it's complete in some areas, but in other areas, it's like sucky. So what? you go back to the Paul's question to the Galatians. So how did you receive the spirit? Was it by the works of the flesh or by the hearing of faith? So since you see that this love was manifested in some areas and you know how you got that, God changed you and you didn't, you didn't realize you just realized one day that. You were changing. So you go to the same source that produced the first type of love with the same tenacity that, hey, God, I'm, I'm lacking this marriage. I need some help. And I need you to complete the work that you started in me. That, that's our hope, that he going to finish what he started. So if he started producing love in you, you press on him till he finish it. Go ahead. Um, you were talking earlier about how, you know, pastors – they don't have complete love, mature love, but they do all these different things. So how do they still have all these gifts and they jacked up in the inside? Does that go to like the gift being without repentance or how does that work? Uh, that's a deep question. and I, I ponder it a lot. And scripturally, I truly can't answer it. Matthew 7 tells us that there going to be some people at the last day who prophesy and cast out demons. That God going to tell to get away from him because he never knew them. And there's other examples of where we see what wicked people were doing decent stuff. Balaam receiving a word from God as man alienated from the people of God and was doing it purely for money. But God did speak to him. And the way I rationalize it in my brain is that God loves people. And those who are willing to step out and trust God to do something on the behalf of people, God will use them. So it can be either from the spirit of God or it can be from the enemy. Yeah. It can be from both. It can be from both. But if when it's truth and it's light and it's transforming and pushing people to God, that's God. But that don't justify the person who's doing it because Balaam was speaking truth, And God truly spoke to him and he declared things about Messiah and about the nation of Israel that set the bar for the coming and understanding of who Jesus was going to be. He was greedy. 
And he, all he wanted was money. What chapter is this? Balaam, that's numbers, what, 21? I need to read my Bible. We all do. <laughs> uh, it's 24, 23. Yes, 22 and 23. Chapter 22 and 23. Is Jesus the only child of Mary? Is Jesus the only child of Mary? No. How many children did Jesus have? Zero. Jesus had no children. He only got spiritual children. Jesus wasn't married. Did Abraham respect God? Did he respect him? Mm-hmm. Yes, to a very large degree, because towards the end of his life, he really started trusting him. Was Jesus the schoolmaster? Was Jesus the schoolmaster? No, the law was the schoolmaster. That take us to Jesus. So the law show us that we need Jesus. And so we go to Jesus based off what the law show us about ourselves. And is righteousness a law? Is righteousness a law? No, righteousness is a standard that's a reflection of the characteristics of God. What does be being fervent in the spirit mean? Being fervent in the spirit? The fervent means to be the fiery or with passion. So being fervent in the spirit is being passionate about it. You ain't lazy or lackadaisical, but you got some excitement and some fire in it. Stirred it up. <laughs> if you commit suicide like Solomon, would you go to heaven? Like Solomon? Yeah. Solomon didn't commit suicide. But then he pushed down the pillars. Oh, Samson. Oh. Yeah, Samson. Okay. That's what I meant. If you commit suicide, will you go to heaven? This is a very deep, deep question. And the only way it's possible for you to commit suicide and go to heaven is if it's possible for you to commit suicide out of faith in God. Because the thing that gets us to heaven is faith in God. <laughs> One more time. The only way it's possible to commit suicide and go to heaven is if it's possible to submit, commit suicide out of faith in Jesus. I don't know. I don't think it is possible. Because the thing that gets us to God and with God is that we live our life in faith. So if it's possible for you to say, I'm doing this suicide because I believe in Jesus. And this is my expression of faith and love and devotion to Christ. It can get you to heaven. But if you cannot do that that way, it will not get you there. So Samson didn't go to heaven? I don't believe so. I can't speak. Absolutely. But. I have no reason to say so. If God is omnipresent, is he in your shoe, book bag, or other stuff? If God is omnipresent, is he in your shoe? <laughs> Kids, ask the darnest <laughs> God is conscious of what's going on inside of your shoe. So when you got them corns and bunions and your feet stink, God know that. No, your shoe does not contain God. Nothing contains God. And that's how we can speak of him as being omnipresence. That his consciousness, his being is alive and present everywhere. But you can't just say just right here inside this shoe is God. But all of eternity lives inside of God because God is an eternal being. If you procrastinate, are you sinning against God? If you procrastinate, are you sinning? Against God. Girl, you're getting real heavy. (laughs) 
Procrastination can be a display of laziness. And laziness and slothfulness is compared to foolishness in the Proverbs. And foolishness is compared to wickedness in the Proverbs. So you read the Proverbs and connect the dots for yourself through the revelation of God. (laughs) So if you... (laughs) So if you are not mature, like making funny faces in class, are you disobeying God? Huh? Like, so if you are not mature, like making funny faces in class, are you disobeying God? If you're not mature in the sense of making funny faces in class, it depends on the purpose and expression for your funny faces. God tells us that we are to be people who are joyful and happy and we should be able to laugh. Laughter does good. But... We are people who are grave and, sin- and serious when it times to be serious, and we're not distracting other people, uh, defecting them from doing what they're supposed to be doing. So just because you're done in your, with your work don't mean you get to stop everybody else from doing theirs. So you're saying yes? Yes. <laughs> How do you bless people? How do you bless people? In multiple ways. You can bless people with your mouth by speaking well of them and speaking life and goodness to them. You can bless people by your reactions to them, just by showing kindness and and just lighting up their day with acts and gestures of affection. And you can bless people by materially, by giving them things that they need, things that will help them fulfill destiny, purpose, and just be alive. What does abhor mean? Abhor means something that you hate so bad it makes you want to throw up. If you're in the military and fight, are you disobeying God, like kill people in the military? If you're in the military and fight, girl, what you been thinking about? <laughs> if you're in the military and fight, are you disobeying God by killing people? This is a tough one. Romans chapter 13 talks about that God set up government. And what it says is that he gave them the sword for the punishment of evildoers and for the upholding, upholding of righteousness. So God set up a governmental system, and the purpose of that government is to punish evil and to reward good. So if you're participating in this governmental system as an agent of God, and you're punishing evil and rewarding good, God won't hold you to murder because you're expressing the divine justice of God. God set up people on this planet that he gives Freedom are the right or the responsibility of expressing his justice. But if you just out there and you in Sudan and you just shooting down and gunning down people because you got a military badge on your shoulder and you say you're an American, yes, you are evil and you're murdering people. If you had a friend who is not Christian, is that disobeying God? No. Depends on what you mean by a friend. A friend as a person that I speak to, that I relate to, that I show love and kindness to. No, but as a friend, as in somebody who influences me, somebody who has a major impact on my life, somebody that I go to in my time of needs and struggles, that's not good. If your teacher says do your homework and you do not do it, are you disobeying God? Like if you don't obey your teacher, are you sinning? God placed people above us and he gives them the right to rule over us. And so obedience to those who are in authority is obedience to God. So we yield ourselves to our masters out of love and obedience to God. So if I'm disobeying them purely for the fact that I'm being disobedient, I am being disobedient to God. But if my disobedience is out of obedience to God, God honors that. 
If you try to please other people, is that good? Depends on what you mean by trying to please other people. By trying to please other people, if you mean that if you're willing to do stuff that you know is not right, that you know is wrong, just purely for the natural satisfaction of other people, just to make them happy or make them feel good or make them not like you, that is wrong. But if by trying to please other people, you mean by doing what's good for them, what benefits them, irregardless of how it makes you feel or what they think about it, then that's good. So pleasing other people ain't always pleasing to other people. If you're about to lose like a game and pray, what's going to happen? I have no idea. The other person might be praying too. Do <laughs> you think God will answer your prayer? I think God answers all of our prayers. Do he always answer them the way you want him to? No, because God knows what's best, better than you do. What does it mean to have patience? To not be easily disturbed or frustrated when somebody is putting you in a position where it's not pleasing to you. Yokana said that not exercising is a sin. What are your <laughs> thoughts on it? Well, Yokana said she didn't say that. <laughs> what do you think about that? The Bible says bodily exercise profited little. And what it means by that is, in comparison to the spiritual and the physical, purely doing the physical benefits you very small in comparison to the spiritual. But does that mean you're sinning if you don't do the physical? I don't see where the Bible teaches that. But if you're slothful and lazy, unwilling to work, unwilling to be exert yourself for good, for for righteousness, and just to get a task done, now you're getting somewhere. Because this modern concept of exercise is a little bit different from the olden days. Most of them people just work. Am I Abraham's descendant? By faith. If you believe in Jesus, you are Abraham's seed. Can people live without love? Can people live without love? They can stay alive. But true life is connecting and knowing God, and you cannot be with God without being in love because God is love. What does it mean to have peace? What does it mean to have peace? To not be disturbed, moved, excited, or anxious in your heart. Peace is a state of calm, a state of wholeness and well-being. Um, so in John 6, Jesus talks about himself being bread mm -hmm. and like, we're supposed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Mm -hmm. And I guess part of me is like really confused as to what exactly that means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Because the people, they were confused too. Like, how are we going to eat your flesh and drink your blood? And he was like, well, the father going to show y'all. Or like, he pretty much like draws people to Jesus and stuff like that. Something like that. So which one, so what statement is it that, that confuses you? Um, I guess just 56, or 55, 56 of John 6. For my flesh is not, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. Um, it's like, he's saying it's like definitely food. But obviously, it's like really not like real life food. So, 
is it just like him as like this essential part of us being alive, like how we need food in real life to like live in this fleshly body, like he's our food for spiritualness? Yes, but it's also a parallel to the outpouring of the manna in our communion with him. So like when you fast forward and they take the communion meal, he brings it up again. When he breaks the bread, he said, this is my body, which was broken for you. When they drank the, the wine, he says, this is my blood, which was poured out for you. So he begins to connect this picture of flesh and blood to his sacrifice and us partaking in that sacrifice. So as we receive him, we receive his sacrifice on our behalf and we commune with him in his death. That is taken of his flesh, that is eaten of his flesh, taken of his blood. And that is expressed when we take communion. So when he's talking about you eating my flesh, he's talking about you partaking in my sacrifice on your behalf. You consuming, you filling your life up with this because this is the true bread that came down from heaven, paralleling with the manna that Moses and them had. You getting the picture a little bit? So it's not just some theoretical something where we just need to be praying in our room and like picking stuff off our Bible and saying, Jesus, I eat your flesh. <laughs> it's our connection and our communion with him through his death on our behalf. Because that's when he brings the, the picture up again that this is my body which was broken for you. This is my blood. Eat you in it, partake of it. And so those who don't eat don't have part fellowship with me. So it's the fellowship and that partaking of that communion that we have through God through his death. That's the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood. The communion with him. Yes. But it's pictured through our communion. But it's a, a physical picture of a spiritual reality that we partake of his sacrifice on our behalf. And that's our life source. That's our place of sustenance. So just to be clear, the little crackers and juice is what? Nothing? It is something. It's a sacrament that God gave to us. But it's a physical reflection or a physical act that reflects the spiritual reality that, that, that we have part, that we are one with him and we have partook of his death on our behalf. So when we do that, we're doing it not just as eating crackers and drinking juice. What we're saying is that your your death on the cross, your flesh and your blood that was poured out for me, I consume it. It's a part of who I am. I am one with you in this act. You get what I'm saying? So it's not trivial. It's not just nothing. It is not pure ceremony. It's a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality that God has put in place for us to partake of, to demonstrate our union and communion with him. So I think it's more mystery than we understand, but the act in and of itself is not the fullness of it, if, if, if it making sense to you. So it can be done in more in more ways than just, you know, doing that. Yes and no. It doesn't have to be the full ceremonial deal like some folks do. But the act in and of itself is out of obedience to the ritual that God has set up. But the act detached from the reality is meaningless. If you get what I'm saying, uh, the Steel J examples, like 
putting on a capping gown and receiving a piece of paper and walking across the stage, detached from getting an education, means absolutely nothing. It does nothing to change your life. But the culmination of an education is in that moment. So once you coalesce the two, you have this beautiful thing that express or that unfolds or that reveals to the world the reality of what has taken place over all these years. So when we partake of communion, in some mystical way, we are expressing an act of communion and union with God. But it can only be real is if the union and communion has truly taken place and that we receive of his death, we receive of his sacrifice on our behalf. That's why Paul can talk about some people taking communion unworthily. It's because they did the outward act in obedience, but their heart and their disposition towards God or in the act was not in righteousness and not in full union and communion with God. Um, in John 7, verse 18, he says, He that speaks of himself seeks his own glory, but he that seeks his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. The part where it's like the same is true is it saying that if you seek the glory, okay, the person that's in him, that's the Father. If you seek the glory of the Father, then you get, then you seeking your own glory too. Is that what the same is true means? No, nah, the same is true. We're talking about the person. So he that seeketh the glory of him that sent him, that one is the true one. So he is the truth. So the same refers back not to the act, but to the person. So the glory goes to the father. Yeah. So he that seeketh the glory of the father, that one is the true one. And there's no unrighteousness in him. Oh, okay. Okay. Just going to say it again. So he, the person that seeks the glory of the father, that person, he's true. And ain't no unrighteousness in him. So the same one that's seeking the glory of the Father is the true one, and he is the one that does not have unrighteousness in him. Um, how do you balance loving people by preferring them over over yourself and balancing that with your walk with God? I mean, because you may not be in a place where dealing with this person that you're showing yourself friendly to, that you can do it without being negatively impacted, to having a negative impact on your soul. And so, like, how do you balance that? And if, and if saying no to whether it's listening to this person vent or something that they're always asking for, saying no and then still being, still walking in love for yourself. <laughs> it's, it depends. I have to play with it till I get where you're going. Because in one sense... There's a sense in what you can and where you can do those things in love, because some people, when they reach out to you, they're seeking for something that true love would not give them. So sometimes by 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 being firm, by being stern. And cutting them off from whatever it is they're actually you're actually loving them because they're desiring something that would either hurt them are something that will perpetuate a cycle that is unhealthy for them. You get what I'm saying? So if somebody always coming to you because they spent all their money on J's and now their kid need school supplies and they do this every year. It's telling them no may feel bad and it may seem 
unloving, unkind, but it's actually a loving act. And you're allowing them to see the consequences of their actions and they have to reevaluate themselves because as long as you keep supporting them before they fall, they won't ever realize that they didn't fail. So in that act and in and of itself, you're showing love because you're trying to get them to the place where they prioritize. They know that my kids' school supplies is more important than the new J's that are coming out. So I can't have J's while they need pencils and papers and notebooks. You get what I'm saying? And then sometimes when people purely vent and it's purely toxic to you, there's two ways you can play this. One, you need to understand you, and that's something you and God need to deal with. But two, or something I learned about purely toxic people, they don't like truth. And sometimes you just have to be cutthroat and straight and truly deal with the heart of the issue and not just allow them to flood. And what happened a lot of times, sometimes they open up and they say, you know what, you're right. And sometimes they're just going to stop calling you. <laughs> <laughs> because it's not that they're seeking help. They just want a sounding board and try to pull somebody into them. It ain't even that they're trying to get back and they just want to vent to get it off. They, they just like complaining. And so they're, they're looking for reason to be hurt. And sometimes you have to just call that out. Hey, man, like I was talking to a kid at work. This boy, he, he wanted to kill himself. He running his head against the door. I'm finna kill myself. Don't nobody love me. Like, man, what's the real problem? Don't nobody love me. Like, boy, you got you got some parents. Yeah, I live with my grandma. Like, boy, have you ever you big kid? Boy, have you ever been hungry? No, sir. Boy, how you ain't never been hungry, you ain't got no job. My grandma and them, they get me they get you everything you need. Yes, sir. Boy, you don't sit yourself down. <laughs> that ain't no way in the world you finna be sitting here wasting my time talking about don't nobody love you when you a big old fat boy. <laughs> who is well fed. But all he wanted was some attention because one little small thing didn't go his way. So it may have sound unloving for me to say, boy, sit yourself down because ain't nothing wrong with you because I'm supposed to be coddled him because he's in this state of desperation and suicidal. But no, I just understood what was really going on. He wanted to have his way and he hopefully that somebody going to feel sorry for him and manipulate things so he can get what he wants. You get what I'm saying? So there are some things where we have a sensitivity to us where we're not strong enough to deal with it. Like some people may have been through something, a trauma that is still a sore spot to them. And so to be in a position where that opens up that wound, that's something you and God have to deal with. And sometimes you might just have to cut it off and say, let's pray. Because I, I know what you're feeling and it makes me about to cry too. So let, let's just pray. Because you know where you are. And sometimes you just have to be straight with people and cut them off. But it's in a loving way where you ask God to truly see the heart of the matter and what's really going on. Because you can beat yourself around in circles with the same person about the same thing over and over again. And every time they call you, it's the same thing. And it don't feel like you're getting nowhere. So sometimes God had to give you that revelation. You can speak straight and they might just cut you off and not call you no more. But it might sound unloving sometimes. For you to say when they crying and you girl, everybody love me and everything okay. Say, girl, ain't nothing wrong with you. <laughs> just, just shut up. Your life is fine. Ain't nothing wrong with you. Get off yourself. But they might need that. So don't think by being firm and being strong, you're being unloving. I don't think by being making the difficult decisions, you're being unloving. 
because all of those can be done. And does that answer your question a little bit? Go back to with the communion things. Mm -hmm. You may answer it, but I'm kind of confused. So, what is the purpose or what is the benefit of when we do the com the communion to our souls? To our souls. There's, there's, there's a multiple benefit. The initial benefit is the fact that when we're doing it, we're living in obedience to Christ. Because it's, it's a ritual or it's a something that he set up. So when we're doing it, we're, we're, we're following him. We're doing what he did. We're walking in his steps, just like baptism. This is something that he said, that the act of it is fulfilling our righteousness. It's something that he required that his disciples do. So when we're doing it, the initial benefit is that we're practicing life in Christ. The secondary benefit is that this is a ritual of communion that God has set up. Now, in our culture, in our world, ritual is something that's been spooky and demonized because Disney is the only place we see them, and it's the person with the little pimple on their nose, and it's always evil. But God sets up certain patterns or certain things that we do out of act of communion and union with him, and communion is one of them. So in the act, if we're doing it out of faith, and if we're doing it conscious of the fact that this is an act of my communion with him, there's a spiritual blessing that we receive just for the act of communion. Because Paul talked about those who misusing it, being sick, but he also talked about the healing that can take place through it. Because there's an act of union, there's an act of communion that takes place in this act that goes beyond our natural understanding or our Western scientific understanding of acts and things with God. You get what I'm saying? But the primary benefit is that we're doing, we're obeying God. And the secondary benefit is that he say that when you do this, this is my body, this is my blood, which is sacrifice with you. So you do this in remembrance of me. So in the coalescing of that, of that, that act, that ritual, we're living are reenacting, are remembering the sacrifice on our behalf. And we're participating as a family in this act of communion with God. And we're anticipating the future return of Christ. Let's say you do this of remembrance of me till I come. So all of eternity is coalesced within that moment or within that act. And there's some deep and spiritual about it that goes beyond our scientific understanding of how stuff's supposed to work. So there's mystery to it because it's a ritual that God set up that he didn't go into any detail explaining how exactly that it worked. And it's the same with baptism. That he said, we be baptized for the remission of our sin. That in our baptism, we're receiving fellowship with his death. Now to us, we just land down in a pool and getting wet. But in the eyes of God, this is an act of obedience. And it's an expression of union and communion with him and his death and his resurrection. So it's a physical reaction of a spiritual reality. So in that moment, the spiritual and the physical meet, and it's a beautiful thing in the eyes of God. Any other questions? All, right. All yours, Apostle.